and welcome to the Arctic Together podcast, a show centering Indigenous community voices where we're getting to the root of research and what it means to be Arctic together through sharing story. I'm your host, Carly. I am Anishinaabekwe and serve as the Indigenous Engagement Coordinator for the Navigating the New Arctic Community Extension Office at Alaska Pacific University. I humbly reside on Denina homelands, but for this episode, I join you from the unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations who have been here since time immemorial. You may have heard this term before in land acknowledgements, and you may have wondered, what exactly is time immemorial? This means beyond living memory, or as long as it can be remembered, and it's a term that conveys the common ways that Indigenous peoples tell their origin stories and express their history in their lands as always being there. For millennia, Indigenous nations have governed, stewarded, and cared for their territories according to their own laws, actively caring for the land and the water to sustain their communities and all beings. This is Indigenous law, this is relationship, and judicial decisions have opened up new political and legal spaces for revitalizing and applying of Indigenous law in Canada today. Today, I am with two amazing Anishinaabekwe who are transforming environmental decision-making and strengthening legal protection for environment through collaborative legal strategies that bridge Indigenous and Canadian law. And by putting the law in the hands of communities and creating legal risk for those who would harm our land, air, and water, they're building the collective power to achieve a more just and sustainable future for all. They're also part of the Moonstone Drum Group, a group of eight singers and hand drummers who come together with a lot of pride, a lot of love and courage, and they offer healing through voice, community interconnectedness, and sisterhood. So this episode, we discuss the intersections of identity, indigenous law, and building community through singing and drumming. Bonjour, my relatives. Welcome, Rain Summer, to the Arctic Together podcast. I'm so honored that I'm able to spend time with you and visit in person today. Could you take a moment and introduce yourselves? My name is Rihanna Simuhui. I come from the Anishinaabeg Nation of Treaty 3, which is in Ontario and Manitoba of what we call Canada. But I live in uh, the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I am a staff lawyer at West Coast Environmental Law and the manager of a program called RELAW, Revitalizing Indigenous Law for Land, Air, and Water. And I am also a hand drummer. I sing with Moonstone Drum Group. We'll share a little bit more about who we are soon. And yeah, that's me. Thanks, Ray. Bujou, Anankwen, Indigenous, Kiyash, Saging, Anishnabek, Vindon Jaba. I just said hello. Um, my name is um, Summer, but my spirit name is Star Woman. And I'm originally from Gull Bay First Nation, which is located in northwestern Ontario. But I grew up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is just two, about two hours um, south of Gull Bay. Um, and yeah, I'm Eagle and Catfish Clan. I am an artist and I also work at West Coast Environmental Law as the RELA Communications Coordinator. Um, 
also a, a poet, um, a recent graduate from UBC in Indigenous Studies and Political Science. Um, and yeah, I say I and intersections of many different communities, but also a singer in the Moonstone Drum Group. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, guys. Um, I think as, as Native peoples, I, where we come from really influences a lot of what we choose to do in our work, our kind of career path, or what we choose as musicians or artistry, um, our influences and things like that. Could you maybe describe a little bit about how where you grew up influenced your work um, or your music and, and Moonstone maybe? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think for me, it kind of, I didn't, like I was really shy when I was a kid, like super, super shy. I didn't really speak. Um, and, but then when I turned like 19, I ended up at this youth gathering and ended up being um, a representative of my nation on, a, on our nation's youth council. And that really pushed me to step out of my comfort zone and start speaking. And I felt like this calling that, you know, I had to push past my my shyness and my comfort zone to speak up because what I was hearing uh, in community was that, you know, we really needed our youth voices heard. So I started engaging with our young people and started coordinating uh, youth and elder gatherings. And I was on this youth council for four years. And that's what really inspired my, uh, I guess, passion to learn more about who I am as an Anishinaabe because that work also put me in ceremony and you know in different spaces like it could be in ceremony it could be in chiefs meeting rooms it could be meetings with ministers uh, traveling to different indigenous territories to meet with their youth so it put me in all these different spaces meeting all these different peoples who are using their their brains and their hearts to advocate for our people across, you know, Turtle Island. So that's what inspired me to uh, pursue advocacy. And then I was really inspired by uh, my, she's my cousin, but she was also the Grand Chief of Treaty 3 at the time, Diane Kelly. And she was uh, the first one of the first uh, lawyer, indigenous lawyers called in Manitoba. And then she was also the first grand chief who was not a man. So, you know, she really put our youth in our governance for our nation and like put us in, in places where our voices would be heard. And she had a law degree, so she used both her ancestral knowledge to advocate for us, but then also she used the, the tools that she learned in law school to advocate for us. And I remember seeing her speaking in our roundhouse and she held a feather in her left hand and a piece of paper in her right hand and spoke about how she walks in both worlds. And that was kind of life-changing for me. Um, and that's when I knew for sure I wanted to pursue law. but. At the end of the day, 
uh, all my work has always been community driven and hearing from, from grassroots people, organizing discussions, organizing events where there's knowledge exchange to really listen to what the issues are, to share back and advocate in the best way that I can. And that's the work I still do as a lawyer. And that work really started when I was a youth. Yeah, I think that's so powerful too. Like a lot of the time, like I think these aren't just jobs for us because I feel like we have a lot of relational accountability to not just our community, not just Anishinaabe people, but you know, everyone, all indigenous peoples, whether they're on Turtle Island, whether they're, you know, in other places. Um, so yeah, that's really powerful. I, I really admire that. What about, what about you, Summer? Yeah, when you ask that question about community and what I think about, and I think for a long time, because I didn't personally grow up in my community. I grew up in the city, I'm an urban Nietzsche, as they say. <laughs> I had to kind of learn to reconnect, but I, w I want to reconnect. And I think that, like, I always knew I was Anishinaabe, but I didn't really kind of understand what that meant until I started reconnecting. So my other half, like my mother is Ukrainian, so my dad's Anishinaabe, so I'm like a mixed indigenous person. So it's kind of like, I'm always constantly walking in these two worlds. But yeah, when I kind of think about that, that moment in time where I knew I wanted to pursue the route that I was on and my career path in education, I wasn't working, it was um, in high school. So I would have been about 16, 17. And I was doing a cooperative education placement at Anishinaabe ASCII Legal Services. And I was working with a, um, a Gladu worker. And she was also Anishinaabe and she really impacted me and was kind of a key role model in my life. But yeah, I just remember sitting in the, the Thunder Bay um, courthouse and reading one of the Gladu reports for um, an individual, an offender of the law. And it was it was long. It was a long report, and basically this report is just supposed to like tell a little bit about your history and impact of residential school system and the '60s scoop and whatnot. And I was crying. I just remember like bawling my eyes out. And this was the first time I'd ever read this kind of like trauma. Um, a lot of my family didn't really talk about it, and I can understand why. Like this is just so heartbreaking to read, let alone have to sit down and have those conversations with your family. I couldn't even imagine. So yeah, just learning a little bit about the injustice, injustices within Canada and within like the law and like the racism, it really like touched me and like hit me. And then also just growing up in Thunder Bay, you can see a lot of that um, racism. So yeah, I decided to attend UBC and you know, I moved away when I was 18 and decided to pursue like indigenous studies just to learn more about my history and my people and also political science and the intersections between those two fields. But yeah, when I moved out here, it's, you know, on unceded territories, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people, as Ray said, I was looking for a community so desperately. And I remember my, my Nana gifting me a drum when I was around that age, 16, 17, and, you know, trying to figure out who I was and where I came from. I didn't pick it up for a long time. I was like, I don't speak my language, you know, 
I don't feel like I could hold this drum and like call it my own and, and whatnot. But yeah, coming out here, I was looking for community and, you know, I saw a poster for Pacific Association First Nations Women and they were doing like a drum circle. I said, hey, why don't I, you know, go check this out? And it was ended up being like, you know, really central. I had to bus an hour from, you know, UBC to the like downtown east side and it was worth it like every week. And that's where I ended up meeting Ray, you know, four years ago now. And, you know, I remember her saying like, she just passed the bar, she was Anishinaabe from kind of the same area. And I was like, wow, she kind of just took me on her wing and I saw her as like a big sister and a role model. And, you know, still to this day, she really um, influences me and she's a really powerful Anishinaabe Kwe, so. But yeah, I am currently in, on route for grad school applications, law school. This is still the path that I feel driven towards. And, you know, I want to get land back and protect the water, protect the lands, protect the air. And, and yeah, I think that is what I'm going to stick with and stick to that. I love hearing, you know, the origin story of like your passion and where it comes from and how it drives you today. And you kind of alluded to this summer about the origin story of Moonstone. Um, could you guys maybe share a little bit more about how Moonstone got started? Like, what does what does Moonstone mean to you? Maybe share a little bit about the group, who's involved. So we started with this drop-in drum group back in 2018, and every week there were, there would be different Indigenous women who would come by, and there would be a few of us who were always there, who were always there. And it was a really beautiful place to learn how to drum and, and learn how to use my voice because it was my first time ever really using my voice. And I just remember it used to be so hard to even try and sing and drum at the same time. You know, like, and then it would take us like five weeks to learn one song. And we kind of transformed and, and moved on from the PFMW and created our own drum group in 2019 called Moonstone. And right now we have eight singers. So there's me and there's Summer. There's Kelly White, who comes from the Snanaimo and Musqueam nations. There's Casey Desjolet, who's Cree from Treaty 6. There's Dakota, who's also Cree from uh, Saddle Lake. There is Claire from Anishinaabe territory out in Ontario. There is Vanessa, who is also Anishinaabe. And then there's also Jade, who is Soto. So it's a variety of of us who who live in Vancouver and we wanted to start making our own songs and building our relationships more deeper. So we started gathering in a native housing community room every every week and then COVID hit so we kind of paused a little bit and then started singing again in parks. So we would actually go to a lot of public parks throughout Vancouver, usually East Vancouver, and literally serenade the peoples of the parks. And 
taking up that space and if you hear eight women or even six people or even four people sing with our drums and with our voices, it, it can be very loud. So you could just imagine people pausing what they're doing and turning towards us and listening to us. And also sometimes the views, like sometimes we'd be by the water, you know, and, and the mountains. And we live by the North Shore Mountains and um, there's a lot of water bodies around us and close to the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, Moonstone has been a rock for me. Like, Moonstone just feeds my spirit continuously. Like, yes, we get together, you know, once a week. Whoever can make it, if it's two of us, three of us, you know, all of us sometimes. Rare, but sometimes. But, yeah, we, we don't just sing too. Like, we eat together, you know, we share medicines. We laugh. Sometimes we even share, you know, like, we'll check in, like, how we're feeling that day. You know, sometimes there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of grief that Indigenous people feel, so... Just getting together with my sisters is um, like a comfort for me, especially in like a, a city that I don't necessarily call home, but you know, Moonstone often feels like a home away from home. But yeah, we also, you know, do different kinds of like art workshops. Like we've done like ribbon skirt making. Um, we're looking towards doing like moccasin making. We've um, done star blanket making. Yeah. We've gone to ceremony together. We've done medicine picking. And also just having fun, like going to events and movies and theaters. And one thing we want to do is, uh, what's that called? The bow and arrow? Hatchery? Archery? Archery! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of these women, too, they're not just like singers or drummers. Like they're aunties, they're moms. A lot of them are moms, entrepreneurs, artists, lawyers, like... A lot of us come from like and walk in different fields of life and also um, intelligent and I'm like the baby of Moonstone. I'm technically like the youngest so I don't know I get teased sometimes but it's all in fun and I look up to these these matriarchs honestly and yeah we just got together um, usually like for fun and then you know all of a sudden in parks and different places people kind of started noticing us and, and hearing our voice and hearing where we're coming from and we've had people come up to us say hey like you know like where can I do this or where can I how can I get involved or you know someone can even just come up and like they'll start crying be like wow you guys this is so beautiful this is really touching and, and stuff and yeah like the last latest event or one that I can remember was at a like cultural summit so we'll We've got asked to do like performances at cultural summits, festivals, secret gigs, secret gigs, Indigenous Veterans Days. So, yeah, there's different like since we all walk in different fields, different people will reach out to us, and you know mm -hmm. we're often more than honored to to sing and, and serenade for people and get our voice out there in community and just show people Indigenous voice and our song and drum and revitalize this music that is just super important to all of us and. Also just learning my language through songs, like it's such a good way for me to learn Anishinaabewan, but we have, you know, we've learned songs from, you know, Musqueam Nation, Salish Nations, and Cherokee, and just all over Turtle Island, which is like, you know, North America or so-called Canada, but yeah, Moonstone's just been a rock and I hope they continue to, can to be, continue to be that rock. Yeah, I think so. We often talk about how we're just getting started and we have so much ideas. 
about moving forward and you know strengthening our songs and our voices and our message our collective message because uh, it is true what summer was saying all of us do so much community work uh, with our hearts and you know often that takes a lot out of people it takes a lot out of us to to do this hard work so when we come together and we sing it's it's recharging you know sometimes it is kind of hard because we have we do have those hard uh, conversations of sharing what we're going through but then we transform that energy with our with our singing and with our voices so it doesn't feel draining it feels uplifting and yeah so I just love Moonstone so much and it can be a lot to to get together you know once a week get together eight people and you know we like to eat we have to eat <laughs> so it's like securing that funding like those pieces definitely come into um, making sure that we can gather in a good way and making sure that that we're fed because you know sharing and singing and when we gather we all work uh, so we can only gather in the evenings or on the weekends so you know we got to nourish ourselves our physical bodies as well as that that singing piece that supports our spiritual emotional and mental aspects of ourselves so I'm always thinking about the food for the Moonstone. We're going to eat sushi tonight. <laughs> hey. yeah. yeah, we have like a, like a group chat, a Facebook Messenger group chat. And we're always just sharing like different resources or links or even like events too. So it's, it's more than, you know, just singing and drumming. But I was just... Jokes. Yeah, and the jokes. The Indian humor is real. Um, I was just thinking too when Ray said like kind of more the start. Like that you were really shy because I, I relate to that a lot. Like I think I I always wanted to sing. Like my dream was to be Hannah Montana at one point. <laughs> like I, I always was writing songs and I was always like a creative person and I just didn't know how to like get my myself out there. So like, I don't know, I always say joining Moonstone felt like, like destiny and doing these little gigs and getting together is, you know, really awesome. And I have, um, I created a short documentary and it's a little bit about my life but it's also a lot about Moonstone too so I'll link that in the show notes too um, so you guys can check it out but yeah I think there's so many more pathways and journeys Moonstone is going to take we want to potentially go to you know Tofino Vancouver Island maybe in the summer and you know have our own little like retreat and bonding experiences and do some ceremony so yeah looking forward to that and all the future holds and maybe ai i heard this evening that sounds really cool <laughs> some virtual things going on no i love that i love hearing about moonstone and i love hearing that you guys come together to, to eat and to joke and to laugh i think one of the best sounds or the most contagious kind of things is hearing just a big group of aunties just laughing together <laughs> just a big loud laughing it's just so so great i love it both serve at West Coast Environmental Law and a lot of the research in 
the navigating the Arctic community, like the research in science with the lands and waters, it, you know, really directly ties to indigenous peoples, leadership and decision making. And I think this also includes working across landscapes or oceanscapes that are not bound by colonial borders, you know, US and Canada. Um, could you maybe talk about the RELAW program for those who are listening and might not be familiar, like what is indigenous law? Mm, indigenous law is different than Aboriginal law. So indigenous laws are the laws of the peoples themselves and they can come from many different sources. So they can come from the, the landscape, the natural laws of the landscape. So for example, water must flow, uh, can come from sacred law. So the teachings of, of creator, like what the peoples have been told, what their stories tell them, can come from the songs. It can come from deliberation, so talking amongst each other and deciding amongst each other, you know, what is what is our law. And it can also come from people of authority, such as an auntie, for example, telling you, you know, don't do this or you should do this. Um, so yeah, indigenous laws come from the peoples themselves and from their lands as well. And it's specific to them. So, you know, there's many different indigenous nations all across Turtle Island in the Arctic, all across Canada. And these different nations have their own ways of being and their own worldviews. And that's their, their way of life, right? And under those worldviews, of course, are their laws and, and what their peoples have been telling them for generations on how they interact with each other and the natural world, how their governance structures are. So that's, that's the laws of the people. And then what often gets confused is with Aboriginal law. So Aboriginal law comes from, you know, the court system. It comes from judges and it comes from lawyers deciding on our recognized and affirmed rights of Aboriginal peoples across Canada. And that includes First Nations, Inuit, and Métis within Canada. So, you know, Aboriginal law comes from Canada, the, the Crown and the court systems and those discussions. But Indigenous laws come from the Indigenous peoples themselves. And that has been existing on these territories for many, many, many generations. And it's their history, right? It shows what happened to them. It shows how they, they dealt with certain situations in their past, how their ancestors dealt with those, how, how specific you know, animals or species or uh, vegetation came to be in their territories. So it, it's the, the knowledge of the people and it's, it's very, it can't be described in just a few sentences, right? So I think that's probably the best that I can explain. Yeah, so with RELAW, we focus on working with Indigenous laws and with Indigenous peoples. So RELAW stands for, again, Revitalizing Indigenous Law for Land, Air and Water. And we partner with Indigenous nations who are working with their own laws to protect, conserve, restore their own lands, air, and waters. So lawyers from the RELAW program work very closely with 
who we call community guides or community facilitators of the nation we're partnered with. And we work together to research, apply, and enforce their laws and strategies on the issue that they're trying to resolve, whether that's a crisis in fisheries, for example, or an influx of settlement in an area that is still pristine. So how to, how to conserve that area and how to work at restoring it back to how it should be back to its health. So the standards of health and thriving ecosystems in Indigenous cultures is much higher than in the Canadian context, right? In Canadian laws, it's about how much pollutants can we put in this water before it's, it's too bad. You know, it's already, like the basis is already polluting the water. But with Indigenous peoples, our standard is, with their waters is, it has to be healthy enough for us to drink. It has to be healthy enough for the animals to drink that water. And it has to be cool enough. The temperatures have to maintain enough cooling to ensure that it can continue to follow its responsibilities. And we see all these consequences of natural laws not being followed. Like I said earlier, you know, waters, natural laws, that it must flow. So if it can't flow, or if it's diluted, or if it's drained, or if it's, if a dam is put up, there's going to be consequences, right? It'll come in the form of droughts, or it'll come in the form of floods. And we're seeing that. We're seeing our decisions that are inconsistent with natural law impacting our lives. So that's the type of, of work we do. So it's very specific and localized to our partners. And I think a big uh, movement within our RELAW program seems to be a lot of nations are going the Indigenous Protected and Conserved Area route. So declaring areas under their own laws as theirs, which is, has always been the truth, but making it known that they're taking back management of that area. And they're going to be doing projects um, to restore that area or train their young people to be guardians of that area. So there's a variety of avenues that Indigenous peoples are upholding their laws within you know, this Canadian context. One interesting tool seems to be that IPCA movement. And then what I've also been seeing is going beyond the colonial borders and really following the waterways that connect us as nations. You know, like the colonial Canada and the United States, and I know other colonial countries have done a really, really great job at dividing and conquering Indigenous nations. And that's true in Canada. And so I think a big movement that I've been witnessing in the last decade is focusing on the water and how it connects us and allying you know, the nations to support that water. Because when the water is looked after, the water can look after everything, right? So all of my work is definitely focused on freshwater governance. Um, I come from from a freshwater people, and yeah, so all of my work and the RELAW projects that 
that I support with all focus on water, freshwater protection and um, biodiversity, bringing back thriving ecosystems. And that is generational work. You know, um, it took about 150 years-ish in some areas to get to this point of crisis on top of crisis. But what I've been hearing from many different elders is that it's possible to restore these areas if we change our behaviors, but it will take a, the same amount of time or longer. So that's, that's the movement I'm involved in and RELA is a part of. RELA is just one program that is part of this larger movement of upholding Indigenous laws and grounding partnerships in relationships and trust and reciprocity rather than exploitative. So our, our lawyers go through, you know, trauma-informed training every year to ensure that there's best practices in community engagement, in process design, in research, in engaging with elders and community members. So there's, there's those pieces as well that uh, is part of being the best advocate or lawyer that we can be for the peoples that we work with and partner with. And recognizing that it's not just um, when we work with Indigenous peoples and in partnership, it goes beyond just the laws, I guess. It's all encompassing of, of the context of where their community or nation's at. There's a lot, of, a lot of big discussions that aren't just focused on the issue that we're trying to resolve. You know, there's, there's things that come up that we support our partners with. And because we place this role of bringing people together in the RELAW program, we have the co-learning program as well. And this brings together people who are unable to partner with because we just don't have enough lawyers to, to do all of the work that is being asked of us. But we bring people together and connect each other to you know, their strategies and to the work that they're doing to be able to share back and strengthen each other's works and to also create that network of support for this community organizing or working with our Indigenous laws and our knowledge holders. Maybe this question is for Summer. I know you're kind of involved in like the communications piece. What role of language, um, sharing story, traditional narrative have in like climate justice or action or Indigenous law? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think I'm constantly learning, especially in this role, surrounded by such, you know, intelligent people and advocates for the work that they do. I'm learning every day. But yeah, what I first heard about the RELA program, you know, Ray would talk about it at, at Moonstone, some of the projects she's working on. And I always like really admired that, that kind of work, the water and land protection, and knew that that was the pathway I was going to take. And just jumping back a little bit when you asked like what is indigenous law you know ray kind of talked how this came this position this you know i'm an indigenous youth position kind of came to her in a dream so i think you know dream knowledge 
is law, is a form of Indigenous law, and I think, you know, in the Western world, that's not talked about a lot, or, you know, you have a dream, like, oh, it's nothing, it doesn't mean anything, but to a lot of Indigenous nations, especially, like, my own Anishinaabe nation, dreams are super important, like, my spirit name um, came from a dream, and yeah, so just acknowledging that piece that Indigenous law is, has so many different forms and, and aspects and interconnections. Um, I would even say, you know, drumming, art, I'm also a, like a painter, those are all forms of law and we're like an, an oral tradition people originally, so I think this also kind of connects to that communications piece is how can I tell um, these stories in a good way? especially when I'm working with these nations um, out west and I'm, you know, from out east. I want to be able to have that understanding um, piece and, you know, doing as much research as I, I can about the story work, about, you know, their languages and where they come from and origin stories. Um, so um, we st we're actually recently, we're starting up again, um, like a story time session. So on Wednesdays, we kind of get together, we go through stories and we do case briefing and we have questions that we ask and we bring those back, you know, to these communities and they'll like guide us and answer any of the questions we have. But I think for me, remembering the, the three R's, respect, relevance and reciprocity, it's, it's all about how I can help this community, how I can bring the skills that I have at, at my capacity to, to do the work that, that I can. So I guess a little bit about my role is um, I'll work on different projects with certain um, communities and I also do some of the, the social media. So if they want like, you know, some infographics or um, talking about the, their IPCA work and sharing different pictures from different events and basically just getting that work or that word out about the good and hard work that these communities are doing because I think the RELAW program is just astonishing and I think there needs to be RELAW programs all over Canada, all over like North America, Turtle Island, I think, um, you know, it's really like specialized and I think it can expand so much further. Like I can even see myself, you know, picking up and absorbing all this knowledge like a sponge and eventually taking it back to my own community because um, that is kind of the end goal for me is to get my legal education and also revitalize my own Anishinaabe laws and then, you know, help help my own nation and community to be able to revitalize their laws because, you know, the, the, bound the bound councils and that kind of form of government is an extension of the colonial system and there's a lot of issues with that that's, you know, not talked about too much, but it's really political basically and we want to get back to these indigenous ways of knowing and being, which is incorporating that that spiritual aspect, that emotional aspect, intellectual and the physical, um, so that our people can um, become healthy. And so all our people can become healthy. I think that's what it comes down to. So working at, you know, West Coast, it's not just indigenous communities who are, who are suffering now, like climate change is impacting everybody, but it is impacting indigenous people disproportionately to where, you know, our reserves or our communities are located. So that's just a little bit about what I do, what I think. Um, I also just say I'm soaking up like a sponge, all this information from the re-lawyers, so we call them the re-law, lawyers, re-lawyers. 
um, and all the other comm people here, the digital designers and the people that put out the information at a larger scale level. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing work, and I'm I'm really happy to be a part of it. And I think I can only see, you know, West Coast going going from up from here. Yeah, I think sharing story or storytelling in the traditional sense um, is is super powerful. Uh, especially in the context of, of climate action, climate justice, climate change. Um, sharing story is like a powerful tool to, I guess, relate to one another too, right? Mm -hmm. I think people oftentimes become just so disconnected because it's happening so far away from like their current bubble or their own little sphere of influence. They're like, oh, I feel so overwhelmed. Like, I don't know how to have an impact here or have an impact there. And I think a lot of the stuff that you guys put out, it's informing not only you know other communities, uh, communities that you're directly working with, but the broader community, the world community. And I think like you were saying, a lot of people have opportunity to learn and maybe do knowledge exchanges or learn from um, the type of work that you're doing. And yeah, it's just really special. I think kind of the root of it is, is sharing story and sharing messaging. Um, which is really great. Yeah, that just makes me think about how I was recently, not even a couple of weeks ago, first involved in the first co-learning program retreat. So I've been involved with West Coast for probably a little over seven months now is when I started. And I'd always hear about these amazing RELA retreats and they happen three times a year. And the first one is Indigenous Law in Story, second in Indigenous Law in Dialogue, and the third Indigenous Law in Action. So I'll be on this journey through this this next year. Um, but yeah, we shared, you know, these stories at the first retreat from different, you know, nations out here and that. Of course, there's all there's going to be differences from each community, but there's also so much um, connection and so much of the same values that, you know, really brings us together. So although we're from, you know, different communities, we're still having, you know, those exchanges of knowledges and pulling out different important pieces um, to help us with this revitalizing of, of our own Indigenous laws. Yeah, and I think a big part of the RELAW program and the work that we do is transforming the narratives of our relationships with one another and Indigenous people's relationships with the land and how laws come from the land and come from the people and, and there's a lot of a lot of knowledge of solutions and the changes that have been witnessed you know, through their lives and through their parents' and grandparents' lives, you know, they've seen with their own eyes the changes that decisions have made, which are decisions that have created climate change. You know, it's human decision-making. So our the RELAW program really does focus on, on decision-making and the bridging between Canadian and Indigenous law and supporting our partners in, in upholding their laws. Um, to protect their lands and waters within this context. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of intersections um, that goes beyond colonial borders because waters go beyond borders, and so do so do many nations, right? Yeah, I think the the messaging is really really important, and and I think this communications position has just been such a transformation for the Relaw program, and and for Summer to to be um, sharing her, her skill sets of being an amazing, you know, like artist, but then also just being 
this young person who's able to talk to our clients and and go to meetings by themselves and and get the work done like it's there's a lot of a lot of trust there and and it's hard work and uh, you know one of our part a few of our partners are going to the United Nations to talk about biodiversity and and um, our work's going to be showcased there so it's to you know stand in solidarity with the nations we support and transform that that narrative across you know turtle island and and now beyond so that's pretty exciting really cool <laughs> a lot of people in like a research community like the traditional academics or researchers who maybe participate in quote-unquote hard sciences um, they might not know about like the complexities of, of law and governance in indigenous communities or across organizations and I think it could be really difficult to navigate like the intricacies of governance especially as it relates to um, in indigenous sovereignty and self-determination um, at a community scale but also a global international scale um, and they might not even know where to look or where to begin to ensure that they are following protocols on, on first you know sitting down with people to, to learn about their priorities um, or their concerns um, do you have any advice for researchers or academics working in Canada uh, with First Nations or Inuit communities? Or how to kind of navigate that or where to look or where to begin? Yeah, I do quite a few presentations to, to researchers who are doing this work. And I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give is how does your research support and uplift the community or nation in which you're doing research for and like that's kind of decentering yourself as a researcher to be able to prioritize the you know the the questions that the community is asking so there's there's a lot of different ways to be able to uh, decenter yourself but i think like it can start with with doing homework so really learning about that community or about that nation you know there's so much available resources online so just never showing up not knowing nothing about the peoples that you're working with and just being able to understand at a at a minimum the the context of that area the political context you know the maybe the legal context whose territories so there's those pieces that, that you could do as a researcher to uh, think about, yeah, how does this work support the nation or the community's goals? Or, you know, how does this work not just sit on a shelf, for example, and, and not be utilized by, by that community? And also recognizing that it's, it's a learning journey and we're, we're always improving every single year of the RELAW program. We get feedback from the people we work with from the learning partnerships, but also from the co-learning program, from those retreats, you know, how can we, uh, how can we do this work in better ways? You know, what are the best practices? So, also, there's just a lot of resources on trauma-informed facilitation and en engagement and process design. So, you know, that's also homework. Like, how can I show up as um, my best self? if I'm asking hard questions, because trauma does come up if we're asking hard questions, even if we're asking easy questions, you know, like when we're in community and talking about Indigenous stories, so much of the stories have been lost because of colonization and because of 
policies and, and laws and residential school and, and all of those actions that were meant to take take our culture away. So, you know, of course those conversations come up, but how do we navigate that and transform that into good discussions that isn't just focused on crisis, but it's focused on, on moving ahead in good ways, but recognizing that we are in crisis, you know? So, yeah, I think um, trauma-informed approaches and I think doing a lot of homework before going into community and really thinking about how does my work support their goals and objectives and how can I make it make their goals and objectives easier, for example. That's really good advice, Ray. I'm like writing my own notes down and taking, <laughs> taking that in. I don't have too much to add here. I think I'll learn as I go, but definitely just like a couple teachings is one way, like, you know, learning Indigenous teachings, which are, you know, vastly different from, you know, some Western teachings. So, you know, respect that might be different from one community to a different, that might be a completely different meaning from what you understand um, respect to mean. There's a lot of protocols in community, so I think it's okay to ask those questions rather than, you know, dive in not knowing any anything at all. So, you know, asking questions in, in a good way is really important so that you learn. Um, but I think one thing everyone can take, not even just researchers, is listening twice as much as you speak. Um, as Jade in our drum group was saying, is you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. So I think if you're going in into a community and doing research with Indigenous folks, you, you really just need to learn how to listen with your whole heart and your whole mind to be able to be there not just for you know what you can do but you know what they can help you with too as a researcher um and then also just something my own parents kind of taught me is to never go anywhere empty-handed so whether they bring <laughs> food medicines funding you know other um you know engineers or anyone that can play a part in you know the roles that you want to do i think that's all really important too is just to show up with your your best your best self. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like experts get paid, so you know, that that includes our knowledge holders, indigenous knowledge holders. They deserve to have their knowledge compensated. Um, so that's, you know, honorarium or or stipend and then we we are talking about food, you know. We always make sure to feed the people we're working with and bring gifts, like gifting is, is really, really important because that's the, the relational aspect, right? Um, so yeah, those are some good points. Awesome. I think the last question I have, and it's a pretty big question um, as we wrap up, what type of legacy do you wish to leave for future generations, maybe in this work or through Moonstone? What impact do you wanna have? <laughs> That's such a good question. <laughs> oh my gosh, what's my legacy? <laughs> I feel like your your whole life you ask that, you know, even when you're an elder, like when you're young too, especially figuring out like what you want to do or, and it changes, right? Like you might not be in this career field, you could choose something completely different and that's okay. But yeah, I think it just, it changes throughout your lifetime too. I think for me, when I think about my nieces and nephews and me being an auntie, I think my legacy 
would be for them to to know that they can follow their passions and their dreams and step out of their comfort zones and also have a lot of fun and that life just isn't about making money it's about living a good life and I think that is the biggest biggest thing is my legacy would hopefully be to always be pursuing that good life and whatever that looks like for you at that time and for me at this time it is living away from my territories and my family to build my career and learn from other nations to be able to share back so yeah i think pursuing dreams i think we all understand that term we hear that term as anishinaabe kwe's here but I think that could be a hard concept to grasp to outsiders, but I don't think it matters if you understand what it means or not. It's kind of just what is the good life to you. Um, but yeah, I always love that. Legacy, that is a big question. Um, and I do want my art to have an impact, whether that's you know singing, poetry, um, I'm writing a memoir, what if that's, if that's writing, or if it's in the legal career, I don't know. I feel like I'm still young where I don't know where those intersections will bridge, but I think that's also a piece of like what I've been trying to navigate is that, you know, the law can be really rigid in some forms, and then I'm like, how can I incorporate this creative um, spirit into this work? And I think I'll find a way. I think you know, as I said, like art is law. I think I'm gonna just build that bridge or build that path. And I think that's gonna be a part of my legacy too, is just opening doors that weren't even there before. And I feel that to my core too, as like, you know, a two-spirit and queer person, you know, a lot of these doors had been closed for us. And I wanna make safe spaces and open spaces um, for these people, um, for these diverse, groups that also have intersections of identity, so paving pathways for them so that they have an easier time navigating you know, more difficult spaces. I think that's gonna be a part of what I really wanna do and you know what I kind of feel like I'm already doing, but you know, I just wanna continue this work and just to, yeah, to have heart knowledge and put heart knowledge and spirit into everything that I do. And I think you're already doing that. You know, art is law, law is art, and you're you're shifting narratives, you're shifting mindsets, and you're sharing your heart, and that's all you can really do. And it has impact in different ways, small and big. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate you both um, for sharing today. I learned a lot, which is really great. Um, but yeah, Chimi Quich for, for sharing and for being on the Arctic Together podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Miigwech, thanks Carly. It was a great discussion.
That concludes this episode of the Arctic Together podcast. It was so great to learn about the Revitalizing Indigenous Law for Land, Air and Water program, and the program really draws on lessons learned over two decades of work with Indigenous peoples on Indigenous law-based approaches to land use planning, impact assessment, and other aspects of environmental governance. Indigenous nations that participate in the Relaw projects have access to free legal services and co-learning opportunities for community members, and it really draws on stories and the wisdom of elders to develop a summary of legal principles. If you are new to working in relationship with Indigenous peoples, it's really important to recognize title, Indigenous rights, and governance, and sovereignty in the Arctic. I really recommend that you check out the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that's otherwise known as UNDRIP. And if you're working in Alaska, you should really become familiar with pivotal moments in history that have shaped land governance, Alaska statehood, and tribal jurisdiction. So please check out the show notes for more information on the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. Chimigwich, big thank you again to our guests for spending time with us and for sharing their stories. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode. The music featured in this episode is from the drum group Moonstone. You can check out their Instagram at moonstone.drumgroup for more music, story, photos, and community events. The NNA Community Office is supported through a cooperative agreement with the U.S. National Science Foundation. You can learn more about the office at nna-co.org. Take care.